All right. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Adam Keller, and I'm here with my co-host and fellow agitator David Story today, filling in for Jacob Morrison. We're broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, we discuss the upcoming election with Democratic Senate candidate Will Boyd and independent candidate for Alabama governor Jared Budlong. We'll catch up on the rising tide of labor in Alabama. And overtime overtime today, we're going to have Warren Tidwell from Hometown Action on and talk about what to do when you're called into the boss's office. All that and more on today's Valley Labor Report. If you want to be part of the program today, we do have a phone number and the line is open. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That's 844-899-8857. You can also leave us a voicemail throughout the week. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time we wrap our hour here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us online at the Valley Labor Report. Reminder that your support keeps us on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. If you want to become a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation or buy our new hat, you can go to tvlr.fm or patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. If you're a member of a union or a local organization, you should get your local to sponsor the show. Reach out to us for more details on that. And finally, I want to thank everyone for tuning in today, whether you're a loyal listener or a first-time listener. We appreciate you spending some time with us. And I really appreciate David Story, longtime union leader and co-founder of the Valley Labor Report, sitting in with me today in the studio while Jacob is out. So, uh, as I mentioned, Jacob's not here today, so bear with us if there's any bumps in the road today, especially on the technical side of things. The phone lines are open, but I do recommend texting or commenting in the YouTube or Facebook chats, as there's a much greater chance I'll be able to respond to it today. Uh, just Just a little pro tip. Special thanks to all of you who do donate, and all of you who comment and call in, all of you who've liked us, shared us, and reviewed us. Your engagement on social media and podcasting apps really does help, and that's a quick, easy, free way to support the program. If you believe it's important to have our own media of, by, and for the Southern working class, please consider supporting us however you can, and please share with your coworkers, friends, family, and neighbors. So, David, thanks for joining us. Yeah, not a problem, man. Happy to be here. Absolutely. A little blast from the past. This is like the chaos lineup, you and me. Uh, no Jacob today. Yeah. Yeah. You said uh, bear with them, if, uh, bear with us if uh, the technical side goes awry, but I got a funny feeling the, the commentary side may go awry as well. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, that's okay. We're keeping it interesting today. Uh, Before we go any deeper into the show, I did want to take a couple of minutes to reflect on last weekend's successful Alabama Troublemaker School conducted by Labor Notes at the University of Montevallo. Over 120 Southern working class activists gathered on Saturday, October 15th to sharpen their skills and build their solidarity. The crowd was very diverse in terms of race, gender, age, industry, occupation, affiliation, and background. There were seasoned union stewards with decades of experience, new organizers just starting the fight to build a union, and community activists seeking to strengthen their coalition with labor. There were folks from across the state and from North Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia in attendance. 
Numerous unions and organizations were represented, with CWA and Raise Up the South in particular showing up in a big way. And there were some familiar faces there from IFPTE, Hometown Action, UMWA, RWDSU, Birmingham DSA, Starbucks Workers United, United Campus Workers, and more. And how many other spaces will you find worker-led discussion and workshops with participants ranging from line cooks to rocket scientists in the same room? Right? I just don't know of many events that are like that. Yeah, it's, it was... It was amazing. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't able to attend, uh, but I saw the pictures and I, and I heard the stories that y'all have come back and, you know, just the fact that, that the labor movement's growing in this state, you know, says a lot about this, right? We were talking about it before the show. It says a lot about this radio show and, uh, how, how y'all have kind of bridged the gaps between labor and labor friendly organizations and, you know, organizations that kind of share our own our own uh, perspective and ideologies. Yeah, absolutely. And I well, I give you a lot of credit for that because, you know, you and Jacob got this thing started and, and I've been fortunate enough to step in and try to help out where I could. And um, yeah, I'm really proud of, of what we've accomplished. And, and I'm proud to, to see the Troublemaker School be so successful. I think um there's a lot of good things to see coming from Alabama's labor movement and it's, it's trending in the right direction. Yeah. It's about time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, back to Saturday, you had folks from call centers to coal mines learning from each other and swapping stories. And I think there's something very powerful about that. Uh, something pretty damn cool about that really. And I want to thank labor notes for being willing mm -hmm. to invest in the working people of Alabama and the South so that we can put the movement back into the Southern labor movement. And shout out to all the folks who served on the planning committee, the speakers and trainers, and everyone else who volunteered in any capacity to make this event a success. Uh, it was an honor for me to conduct a couple stewards workshops alongside a great brother from the CWA, Matt Flown. And I know when we were in Chicago for the big labor notes conference in June, those of us from Alabama were already scheming on how to bring Labor Nodes back home. By July, Louise Leon and Courtney Smith from Labor Nodes already pulled several of us together to form an organizing committee and begin the planning of this event. We all worked together to plan the content and organize the logistics. It was really, it was a collective effort and a collective success. And David, you and I were talking before the show, it was what, three or four years ago when Labor Notes last held an event in Alabama. Uh, I happened to meet up with you and Jacob down there at the Adelante Worker Center, and there was maybe a dozen people there, you know, 12, yeah, 15. Yeah, I'd, I'd bet. And so to have roughly 10 times that number of attendees at this year's Troublemaker School, I think really demonstrates the energy of the resurgent labor movement here in Alabama and across the South. Yep, yep. And, and, and there, you know, there's, there's, I love labor notes. You know, I've always been a big fan of labor notes, been a subscriber for years and know most of the staff there, uh, personally, but the, we don't have to have labor notes come down. You know, we could do this every year, uh, you know, and, and, and that's what, and I think that's kind of the point of what labor notes wants to build is something, uh, something that's organic in your own community and know? sustainable. Yep. And I 100% agree with you, and I think there were a lot of conversations last weekend about, hey, let's not let this be the last one. 
Um, let's keep it going. And you're right. Um, you know, Labor Nodes helped us kick it off, but we've got the people right here. We've got the expertise. And, and so I personally, I hope everyone who attended learned something useful and formed some new connections to grow their allies. And uh, I can't wait to see the lasting impact that comes out of it because I know it, it certainly made a difference. And some of those relationships, if not the knowledge, is going to make a, a lasting impact. And for those of you who couldn't attend, be sure to check out last week's episode of the Valley Labor Report, where Jacob interviewed several of the workshop trainers. It's not a replacement for having been there, but it will give you an idea of what we learned and discussed on Saturday and hopefully advance your learning when it comes to the labor movement and organizing. Thanks again, Labor Notes. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to the next Troublemaker School. As David said, uh, we can do this and we should keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If nothing else, you know, just getting those rank and file members together to talk about how to move forward in this state and progress our ideologies and our agendas. And, uh, you know, the uh, it, it's important. Everybody else does it except for us. You know, we, we yeah, yeah, granted, we've got AFL-CIO conventions and things like that, but there's never... There's never really a, a space like what Labor Knows provides, you know, where where rank and file members talk about those issues and not uh, people that are separated from you in leadership positions. Right. And, you know, something you just said that resonated is that if you think about it, the bosses and politicians are always doing these kinds of events, right? They're always networking. They're always at the golf course or at the casino. Or, CPAC. Right. They're always getting together. They're always uh, sharpening their skills and building their solidarity amongst themselves. So I think it's imperative that we do the same. I want to switch gears here to last week in Southern Labor, which is a segment we do pretty much every week where we tell you what happened in the labor movement in the South. We pulled information from Jonah Furman's newsletter, Who Gets the Bird, which compiles all this information for the entire United States. So if you want to see what's going on outside, uh, outside the South, subscribe to his newsletter, whogetsthebird.substack.com. With that, let's jump into new organizing for the week of October 8th through 15th. And this one I'm really excited about. 172 workers in New Orleans are seeking to form the first ever Lowe's Union and are going with an independent union inspired in part by the Home Depot workers in Philadelphia. I think that's huge to see Philadelphia, Home Depot, New Orleans, Lowe's. That's a big deal. These are two of the biggest employers in the country, um, and we've got more and more folks are in this kind of work, and, and it's about time that those be union jobs. Also, in new organizing, uh, for more perfect union, Jonah covered the formation of yet another independent union, this time among 300 customer service workers at T-Mobile. So we're seeing a trend with these brand new uh, independent unions starting from scratch. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, moving on to wins and losses for the week. Around 100 Apple Store workers in Oklahoma City voted 56 to 32 to join CWA, making it the second store to unionize among Apple Store chains, and it's the first with CWA. The other store organized with the machinists outside of Baltimore. So way to go, machinists. Way to go, CWA. Breaking into Apple. 
There were 10 linemen from the Rawls County Electric Co-op in New London, Missouri, who voted 8-2 to join IBEW Local 2. There were three Lockheed Martin clericals at the Air Force Base in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, who voted 2-1 to to join the Machinist District Lodge 75. And I just got to say, I love it when I see those tiny little union elections, two to one. Um, that's that's interesting. And uh, way to go, machinists, being willing to welcome them in, even such a small workforce. And there was uh, one loss in the South for the week. There were 111 warehouse workers and drivers for Ryder Logistics in Hazelwood, Missouri, who voted 21 to 32 not to join Teamsters Local 688. Moving on to strikes and bargaining. The BMWE, the third largest rail union, has voted down its tentative agreement from the National Freight Rail Carriers and put a strike back on the table for as soon as November 19th. Nobody could have seen this coming, right? Uh, Unless, of course, you were talking to the actual railroad workers. The interesting thing about the timing, except for the fact that it's, of course, after the midterms, is that we'll likely hear vote results from the two bigger unions, BLET and SmartTD, one to two days before the November 19th deadline. And based on the details of their tentative agreements that came out after Biden did his little victory lap, I just can't see them both ratifying, especially now that the BMWE has shown some defiance. The BMWE workers, for the most part, aren't even subject to the worst of the work-life balance issues, Plus, there's a borderline poison pill in the BLET Smart TD TAs in its creation of self-supporting pools, which adds a whole other layer of scheduling uncertainty for the operating crafts. And that's not just me and Jonah being cranks about this. Uh, it was also covered in the New York Times. So sticking with the rail lines elsewhere in rail votes, the Smart MD, the Smart's uh, Mechanics Division, about 2,000 members or so, and the National Conference of Firemen and Oilers, which is affiliated with SEIU, both voted to ratify their deals this week. So the count is now five unions to one in terms of who's ratified or rejected, but it only takes one to force a national strike, and BMWE is at least as big as the other five that have accepted combined. So stay tuned to the rail, uh, the rail industry story. It is not over, despite what maybe the White House wanted you to believe. Amazon workers walked off the job in a couple of locations recently, uh, California, Illinois, and Stone Mountain, Georgia. In the, fran- fra- in the fractured landscape of Amazon organizing, each of these are separate independent groups teamed up with local worker centers or union-backed organizing groups, but none have formally affiliated with an existing union. But those relationships are, of course, in flux. So, you know, we'll see if any of them uh, do come under one union umbrella. Other strikes to occur. We had uh, Independence, Missouri and Knoxville, Tennessee, among Starbucks locations with strikes. While the continued uh, closure of stores happens in Chicago, Colorado Springs and elsewhere. So Starbucks Workers United is still going on strike including right here in the South in Knoxville, Tennessee, Independence, Missouri. And the store itself continues to close those that have voted to unionize. So we'll see how how that plays out with Starbucks. 
The next one is far outside the South, but I wanted to mention it, which is that educators in Malden and Haverhill, Massachusetts, have embarked on two illegal teacher strikes after contract negotiations broke down. In Haverhill, a judge has issued a temporary restraining order trying to force the teachers back to work, but it's unclear if they'll comply. So I want to send my solidarity with these brave educators and may your willingness to defy the law be an example to educators across the country. Also outside the South, the ASFME Local 397 strike at the Philadelphia Museum of Art has come to an end after 19 days on the picket line. Really just wanted to include that one thanks to our regular listener, Infinite Content, who's been keeping us posted on this action. Back home in Alabama, hundreds of paper mill workers with street, three steel workers locals at West Rock down in Cottonton, Alabama, remain locked out. Last week, or actually two weeks ago, uh, the Valley Labor Report, we spoke with one of the local presidents. Meanwhile, in Jacksonville, Florida, West Rock workers held an informational picket, and the company announces cutting over 100 jobs in St. P- Paul, Minnesota. There were active transit strike threats across the country last week, including in the south in Louisville, Kentucky, with ATU Local 1447. And Sarah Jones at New York Magazine has taken a look at the looming Teamsters strike threat at UPS, uh, including interviews with David Levin of Teamsters for a Democratic Union, who said there's a scenario where UPS workers mobilize and they take strike action, and that affects 6% of GDP. And they win a good contract, and that would be a huge labor victory, explained David Levin, a staff director at Teamsters for a Democratic Union, which is a grassroots organization that supported O'Brien and his Teamsters United slate during the recent election. But Levin continued, I think a much bigger dream is that next August 1st, 350,000 UPS workers go on strike to take on the issues that are affecting not just them, but Amazon workers and other workers in this growing sector. So we'll see if the union uh, is in that kind of fighting shape or if every workers and uh, if workers in every industry uh, surrounding UPS will also uh, be inspired by this fight. But it definitely could be a game changer. Having the Teamsters go on strike, you know, would it, it, the, the economy would come to an absolute standstill. And, uh, you know, six percent of GDP with UPS alone. Yeah. That uh, I mean, that includes tons of flights, tons of drivers, all the all the support. Uh, you know, probably seventy five percent of Amazon crap is shipped with UPS, and that's a good thing. But uh, you know, every once in a while, you need to slap the capitalists in the face and let them know who runs a, who runs this country, anyways. Well, and based on what I'm hearing from the new president of the Teamsters, and from a lot of the more militant members in the Teamsters. It sounds like they're they're gearing up for a, for a big fight. They're ready, yeah. And that, you know and that 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 brings to mind. Speak with your local uh, UPS driver whenever they come by, especially if they're in Alabama. Ask them if they're in the union, if they're paying dues, and if not, why not? Get, you know, get them involved. Yeah, I believe Jacob has been talking with some of the Teamsters here in North Alabama, uh, and just trying to build some connections as we prepare for this major contract fight next year. Yep. It could be huge. Yeah, I can tell you they showed up on our picket line whenever we were on strike uh, five, four or five years, four years ago. So uh, Teamsters are are good folks. They are, absolutely. Uh, So transitioning into the political fights, 
Lauren Kayori Gurley has a profile of the great hope of union lawyers everywhere, NLRB General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo, where she comes from and what she might deliver. And while it's hard not to feel like this is all just moving way too slow before our wannabe Volker does his wannabe Volker shock, it is worth noting that an NLRB judge did hit Starbucks with a gazelle bargaining order just this week. And speaking of labor boards, federal union leaders from AFGE, IFPTE, and NFFE are calling in labor notes for the confirmation of Ernest Dubester for another term at the head of the Federal Labor Relations Authority as the agency languishes with a split partisan composition as the Democrats just can't seem to check this one off their to-do list. And uh, last week, Jacob also mentioned that there was a very good article in the Huffington Post by friend of the show, Dave Jameson, talking about the Supreme Court case of Glacier Northwest. So highly recommend you check that out. Moving towards internal union politics, the UAW election is officially in full swing with ballots, ballots mailing out to some 100, 1 million active members and retirees. I uh, know my father-in-law, he just got his ballot in the mail yesterday. So uh, for the call, Jane Slaughter and Barry Eidlin break down what's at stake in the vote and why the showdown between the eternally incumbent administration caucus and the UAWD caucus, a driving force behind the one-member-one-vote movement, is so significant. So definitely will be interested to see how the UAW election shakes up. And we don't usually cover corporate moves per se, but the Kroger-Albertson's merger deal is a big deal for labor. The grocery leviathan would leapfrog UPS to become the largest private sector employer of union members at something like 460,000 workers, well over 400,000 of whom would be UFCW members across the stunning 500 contracts. The union released a statement, as did the Teamsters, who represent about 18,000 workers. Uh, at the represented grocery stores. And finally, since this has been one of the biggest labor stories this week, I wanted to add that Amazon Labor Union was unsuccessful in their attempt to organize a second Amazon facility in New York. They, the ALU lost nearly two to one. And while I'm sure there are plenty of hot takes flying around about what happened, I want to extend my appreciation and solidarity to all of those involved in that struggle Please keep your head up. It's worth remembering that we're going to lose some. G we're going to lose most. Yeah. I, I mean, given the state of our laws, the state of our government, and the immense concentrated power of corporate wealth, almost every union campaign is sort of a David versus Goliath fight. And even more so when we're talking about a scrappy, grassroots, independent, newly formed union taking on one of the most powerful corporations on planet Earth. We're going to have some defeats and we're going to have some setbacks. But to those Amazon workers in New York and all of us working class folks who are watching, we have to remember to pick ourselves up when we get knocked down. Yeah. Yeah. And those, I mean, those those elections, you know, especially with Amazon, get much more coverage than they actually should. And so whenever you get a loss like here in uh, Birmingham and up there in Albany, then the, it looks it, – it makes – the optics look worse than it actually is. I mean, the fact is, you know, we, we, all unions lose most of the, not most, but a majority of the elections that they run. It's, you know, it's not like, uh, 
you're going you're not going up against moneyed interest so and we don't have money you know we we got a little bit of money but nothing compared to corporate america so right you're, yeah. you're constantly in a fight the imbalance in money, the imbalance mm-hmm. in resources overall, the imbalance in the the law, the le- yep, legislature, it's um, a nightmare. The judges, uh, you name it, it's it's all stacked against us. So mm-hmm. we're going to lose, and we're going to lose maybe more than we win. But again, you have to pick yourselves up. You have to pick each other up, dust each other off when you get knocked down. You can't stay down because the other side won't stay down. We have to learn from our failures and our mistakes, and we try again better. So that's what we do. All right, I have uh, one quick hit here before we go to our first break, and I wanted to share some news with you guys. Uh, on October 27th and 28th, I'm going to be in Houston, Texas, for Power Up, a climate reality training on advocacy and action. And I'm going to quote here from the Climate Reality Project, which is the organization conducting the conference. Quote, From Florida to Texas, communities along the Gulf Coast have borne a significant brunt of our nation's dependence on fossil fuel energy, with entire communities disrupted by disproportionate placement of polluting infrastructure. This power-up training will be the first of its kind, connecting those impacted in the Gulf South to build local power together and advance regional climate solutions. So I'm going to go ahead and admit I had never heard of the Climate Reality Project or this summit. I just happened to see it online, and on a whim, I applied. And I really appreciate that they invited me to attend and that they are interested in what a rank-and-file union worker from rural Alabama has to say. My understanding is that this is an organization started by Al Gore. Now, if you know me or you've listened to the show much, you probably know that I have some deep philosophical differences with Gore's politics. But I'm approaching this opportunity with an open mind as a labor activist who is also concerned about the existential crisis of climate change and environmental destruction. And as a father who is concerned about the kind of habitat and the kind of future we're leaving for my daughter and the generations to follow. I will say that it looks to be a fairly young and a very diverse lineup of speakers, most of whom are coming from the South. So that's good. I'm interested in hearing how these conversations around the climate relate to the labor movement specifically and the working class more generally. I'm also curious about the makeup of the conference. Will it be a lot of NGOs? Will it be grassroots activists? Uh, What will their politics look like? How different will it be from mine? Perhaps. We'll see. Uh, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing stories of everyday people banding together to make positive changes in their community. I'm hoping I hear some of that while I'm there, and I will certainly be providing an update for the show once I get back to share what I learned and what I experienced, and I would love to hear feedback from listeners. That's why I'm sharing this today. I'd love to hear any feedback listeners have, Uh, so please share in the chat any thoughts or questions you'd like to pass my way as I prepare to attend. I'm excited to report back on how it goes. And with that, we're going to take a short break. On the other side, we're going to hear from two candidates in next month's election, Independent Jared Budlong for governor and Democrat Will Boyd for Senate. Just a reminder, you can send in a text if you want your voice heard. Send it to 844-899-TVLR. See you on the other side of this break. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. 
We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern worker movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Come on, you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Labor creates all wealth, all wealth should go to labor, and you're listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Adam Keller, and my co-host today is David Story, filling in for Jacob Morrison. If you have anything to add, feel free to chat in on YouTube or Facebook or send us a text at 844-899-TVLR. All right, folks, so uh, just me and David today in the show. We've got a couple of candidate interviews we're going to play from coming up next. We've got some important elections in just a couple of weeks, so... We are continuing our series of candidate interviews to talk to folks running for office and 
Ask what kind of message they have for working-class voters. These candidate interviews are released in full as standalone podcasts wherever you find your podcasts. And they're also released in full on our YouTube channel at the Valley Labor Report. Today we're going to play excerpts from two of these interviews. Up first is Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate, Will Boyd. The Reverend Dr. Will Boyd running for U.S. Senate. So, you know, what is it that that makes you interested in in supporting unions? Where did you get that, um, you know, that inclination and and uh, how have you been being received at these union events? Well, you know, uh, I come from a family where there are a lot of white collar workers, a lot of veterans, but I also blue collar workers in the family. I watched my father work at Dixie Cup back in the day. Uh, it's It would have been where you have all of your paper plates, paper cups made. He was probably someone who didn't have more than a third or fourth grade education, but he went on to become, in my mind, one of the smartest people. I'm not just saying that. I mean, I hold an engineering, but but he, he, he could pretty much break down anything and then put it back together again. So he was in a in a high ranking place uh, with that company for many years as well. So uh, that blue blood, I guess, is is there from a different perspective. Not not talking about law enforcement in this case. I'm talking about about labor. So I've I've been around labor quite a bit, even in my uh, lifetime after graduating from college. I was able to work in union uh, environments. Uh, Tula and dye makers were very good friends of mine because I of course ran even assembly lines that had three and 400 people affiliated with them in some type of way. Uh, I had people who were affiliated with Boilermakers Unions, uh, United Steel Workers and others who affiliated with, uh, obviously working with the material that came into my plant. I was around them even on Fridays as a, as a manager, uh, an operations manager, engineer, I had the opportunity to sit in union meetings. So union stewards, shop stewards, uh, union presidents and I were very close. I, I probably had a totally different relationship with the union than most because I believed in listening to people. I guess that's part of my pastoral side, part of my uh, clinical psychology side, if you would, Christian world. I just believe in that you should listen to people and understand where they're coming from, what their concerns are. So that all being said, uh, I've stood up with unions in arbitration meetings, remediation, uh, looking at the National Labor Review Board materials. Uh, I've actually stood with unions and made sure uh, we battled, or at least made sure we stopped what we would be called misclassification. So when you talk about Davis-Bacon and prevailing wage and um, uh, PLAs, FMLA, or any of these acronyms, uh, Davis Bacon, and I bring up all these different names. Most people who are watching, you know, know what I'm talking about. These are familiar to me because I've, I've just sat with secretary treasurers like yourself. I've sat with union presidents. I've sat with uh, people at all levels of unions and just talked to them about what they need and tried to help them fight. Uh, of course, uh, Senator Jones and I, uh, people like Steve Stutz, the International Union of Operating Engineers. And I, I could run through all these unions, but We've just partnered together and tried to go around to different union shops and talk to people and see what their needs are, or what they desire. When I go out to hang out coal miners, I don't go out to speak. I don't go out to make any, any speeches. I go out just to serve food, work in the pantry, put together, help 
bag up groceries. Uh, you know, when people have questions, I answer them from a political perspective. But uh, generally speaking, we're talking about people who've been on right 18 months. People who would really like to see their lives go back to some level of normalcy. So I'm just trying to help them get their voice to be heard. And whatever that takes, uh, I'm willing to do. I'm even willing to put this candidacy on the line, uh, uh, this nomination uh, on the line, if you would, and, and just help even bring mediation for the coal miners. So when you mentioned the paper plant, paper mill, and others who were, who were possibly facing strikes, and scabs that we call them being dealt with, uh, those are just issues that I really hate that they have to go through when, when negotiations fail. But it's important for the union worker to be heard. We want to hear that people are making realistic wages. We want to hear that people have uh, an opportunity to work in safe conditions. We want to hear that people have their voices being heard whenever there's something that is not compliant or not going right uh, for them. So these are things that we need more of. Uh, I think if we had managers to to union workers more often, uh, we would see a lot less strikes, a lot less uh, contracts uh, really been breached, violated. And, and I just think the world would be a better place. So I'm you not. Know, that's who I am. I'm just a friend of labor. What are, let's say, the top top three issues that uh, you know that that you're running on? That if we give you a magic wand, you get done your first day in office. Well, the economy is very important to people. We could talk about whether people are pro life, pro choice. Whether between we could talk about our issues that relate to you know what's on the table right now, but. Everything seems to go back to the economy first. And, and, you know, you can have people who have a lot of desires to purchase things, to do things, but without the economy being where it needs to be, really building the economy from the ground up, from the middle out, people aren't free to, to, to go about their days and do well. I keep saying I'm trying to be a voice. I'm trying to be a voice so every Alabamian has a shot at the American dream. I want to see every person who is in that working class able to go out and and earn eventually that realistic living wage where they can take care of their family. Uh, it bothers me in Alabama that we have, in some cases, by some measurements, 800,000 people in poverty. It bothers me that we have a regressive grocery tax. It bothers me that we're looking at very low, even record unemployment in Alabama, but we're also seeing where there will be thousands of jobs that will go unfilled because people don't have the right skill sets. So we wanna see, as it relates to the economy, that there are taxes that are cut. We want to see our workforce actually support it. We want to see the modernization of infrastructure. We want to see the detangling of regulations. I mean, these are things that are important, uh, developing energy resources. But for the most part, when you get the economy moving, uh, especially coming out of a punishing pandemic and people are able to go to work, uh, we're better off. So number one, the economy. Number two, uh, education continues to rise to the top. Uh, education is important because People want to know that if they're going to go to a trade center or if they're going to be in a, in a dual credit program, if they're going to leave high school and go off into the trades, that they have a, an ability to train with some group of people, jump straight into that apprenticeship or that German role, master role at some point in time, own the, their own business uh, in the future. We want to make sure those educational opportunities are there. So I talk about K being fully funded. Talk about preschools. I talk about you know primary, secondary learning. Talk about the fact that we need to uh, fully fund HBCU, historically black colleges, universities, community colleges. But 
I've often talked about that blue collar revival. And with that blue collar revival, working with labor, partnering with businesses, you can be pro business and pro labor at the same time. I believe we'll see that economy shift. And that's all because of the educational, uh, uh, exceptional educational uh, process that I'm trying to push forward. When we are, um, you know, thinking about some labor related issues, some union related issues that might come before the U.S. Senate, obviously top of mind is going to be the PRO Act. I'm assuming uh, I think it's it would be a safe assumption to say that you would support the PRO Act. Absolutely. Uh, I'm surprised I didn't even say that already. <laughs> Yes, the protecting the rights to organize is very important to me. It's something I've for for years. I believe people need to organize, they need to bargain collectively. Uh, just like people want to codify Roe v. Wade, uh, you want to see in the proactive codification of what's called the ABC test uh, as it relates to a contractor. You want to make sure that, that there are no uh, intimidating meetings. And you know hmm. they have several different names. But sometimes businesses have a tendency to try to bust unions or stop unions from starting by having these meetings where they intimidate, where they call people in and then tell everything about uh, people like me and why they should not organize or have a contract even drawn up. Uh, there's also, uh, with the PRO Act, uh, where we desire to see what the same tools and resources inside of a business that are used to disseminate emails to employees can also be used by labor unions so that we don't have to start off trying to pull names together and build lists, but it's it's all there. Uh, again, there are a number of things that are in this PRO Act that are important, but as a person of color myself, uh, I can tell you that people of color who are in unions typically make more than those people of color who are outside of unions. Right now in the state of Alabama alone, we're seeing where we have really the lowest unemployment, really the lowest uh, labor participation out there. And uh, if my numbers serve me correctly, and I don't want to mess anything up for, for, for you today as far as uh, the stats are concerned, but I, I believe union membership is about 5.9%. And uh, if we were to look at the numbers, actually right now, I think there are about 115,000 uh, union members, people who are card-carrying union members in Alabama, but regrettably, I want to say in the last year, there are around uh, 18,000 people who enjoyed union benefits without being a part of a union. So mm -hmm. Alabama tends to be a right-to-work state, uh, but even though you have a right-to-work state, people try to stop labor unions from doing what they want to do, even through the PRO Act. And while people that you and I know well, people who are in labor, we're, we're probably not as optimistic that the bill will will push through. We have to be uh, able to at least break it up into some sections and say, perhaps if not the PRO Act this time, maybe it's it's a different name, but we, we, we make sure we keep pressing forward. You asked earlier about why do you keep running? You know, you don't quit. If the PRO Act in its entirety now is, 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 is not enjoyed, not pushed through, not passed, don't stop. Go back and offer another bill. You know, we started with this, this uh, this infrastructure bill that which was bipartisan. We talked about a build back better plan. There were several steps to get us to where we are with the in Inflation Reduction Act, uh, now law, right? So it, it it requires people not giving up. People like the union leaders, people like our friends uh, in Brookwood that continue to fight, even though it looks like an uphill battle. You don't quit. You keep. Some of the people get on the line every morning at 4.30 and they stay on as long as they can. They're, they're called the crew. We just have to have a crew of people, even in the Senate, like myself, 
who are committed to pushing for certain parts. If we want it all, right? But at least certain parts of the PRO Act still being pushed forward, even if certain parts get kicked back. All right. So that was Democratic candidate for Senate, Will Boyd. Um, that's someone that David and I are both pretty familiar with. We've known for many years and appreciate that he's uh, willing to run. Uh, at least folks do have a choice on the ballot uh, for the Senate. And coming up next, we have uh, a little bit different candidate, Jared Budlong. He's running as an independent, as a write-in candidate for governor. Um, as you may know, the ballot access in the state of Alabama is awful. Uh, when it comes to third party and independent candidates getting on the ballot, it's extremely difficult in the state of Alabama. I know that's one of the, the issues that uh, Mr. Budlong is is trying to bring attention to in his campaign. So uh, coming up next, Jared Budlong running as an independent for governor. I have with me independent write-in candidate for governor, Jared Budlong. As a practical matter to subject criminals, you know, quote unquote, to this egregious treatment is not good for the rest of us. Because right. we know that, what is it? I, you may know that because it, it seems like you're deeper in this issue than I am, but it's something like 95%, 97% of people in Alabama's prisons are going to be back out on the street, right? And so, and and that's the way that even the most hardened, you know, like, I hate criminals, tough on crime guy out there, he's not going to say that you should do life even for for violent assault, even if you, you shoot somebody and you blow their knee out, right? right. They're not going to say you should do life in prison for that. Nobody's going to say that, right? And that's- Very and that's, few. And, and and that's a terrible that's a terrible thing to blow somebody's knee out right but but right. you know the proportionality i think is important and proportionality would dictate that 97% of these people are going to be back on the out on the streets at some point and so how are we preparing them to reenter society well we are preparing these people to reenter society as gang members as drug addicts as people who can't get gainful employment because they have a felony on their record i mean the whole right. system is it, it is not designed to help the people who are accused of crimes or anybody else for that matter it's just right. designed to oppress people yeah, it's a it's a punitive system and that we have we should have learned in the last three or four hundred years that that doesn't do anything because we have been putting more people in prison over those years. Mm. Now, that it ebbs and flows. And I'll you know I'll admit that in our state, we we saw a decline in incarcerated individuals for a bit and it went it started to, to go back up. Uh, and that's our you know, that's partially due to our recidivism rate, which you mentioned people leave. But in Alabama, we have a 30% recidivism rate on average, and that's only counting three years post um, being reentered into be, being reintroduced into society. So if we only count the first three years, it's still 30%. So I, I would, I'm curious. I don't think the, the data is available that the state will give us because uh, they're not transparent on a lot. I would be curious what that looks like at 15 or 20 or 25 years and see how high that rate is because 30% is bad enough. And if we're only counting three years, like it just, it should be 
it should be obvious to the public mm -hmm. that our system isn't doing what we've been told it's supposed to do, which is corrections or rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. It that's not what it's that's not what it's doing, and I don't I don't think that's what it's ever been intended to do. And I'll I'll leave uh, I'll I'll introduce that with one stat. Uh, our first prison, as we know them now in Alabama, was built in Wetumpka in 1844, and four years later, they started selling the labor of those who were incarcerated. So since 1848, we have been selling incarcerated individuals labor as a state. Like I, it's never been about rehabilitation. It has always been about labor. And so what is the, uh, to, to what degree can the governor unilaterally fix some of these issues? What are some of the things that you would do, you know, day one type stuff? And, and then what are some of the things that are going to have to be legislative fixes uh, that you would have to get broader public support for? Yeah, most of it's legislative. And I'm, I'm fully aware of that. And I try to make sure everyone that I talk to, especially those who are either inside right now or their loved ones, I, I try to let them know I can't fix most of the things that you're seeing. And thankfully, they're they're catching on. Uh, but there are some things that I would like to do first day. And a lot of that's to address the current conditions. So right now, Alabama is currently being sued by the federal government, by the DOJ, for the conditions of our prisons. And this is the second time that that has happened. It happened in the, the late 70s, early 80s for similar conditions. And we didn't fix it on our own then. So the federal government took over our prisons back at back in the late 80s. And we're in a very similar situation now where people are dying on a nearly daily basis from drug overdoses, um, assault. Uh, we've got unalivings, self-unalivings. I don't know how we want to phrase that here on the on the radio, but people taking their own life and the danger isn't only to the incarcerated individuals. It's actually not safe for the the staff that work there, mostly because they are understaffed. They're actually the last count that I saw was about a third of the necessary staff is what they have on on hand. And that makes it dangerous for everybody. So the first thing I would like to do when coming in is actually fulfill the purpose and keep people safe there by and it sounds extreme and I'm fully aware declaring a state of emergency because that's where we're at. We have people dying on a nearly daily basis. It's a very, very defined group of people who are in danger on a daily basis. So we'll declaring a state of emergency and bringing in the National Guard to fill in the gaps until we can get it safe enough to then actually hire people through the normal channels and then let the National Guard, you know, go back, uh, go back to doing their thing and let them go back into being preservists, right? They, we don't need them there all the time or full time. But I want I want to fill the gaps in staffing, but also have some extra oversight. You know, we want right now there's a problem with corruption and there's a problem with um, contraband making it into the prisons. And it was happening even at the height of covid, which means there were no visitations and yet things were still getting in. And from what I've heard from those who are on the inside and their loved ones, it was correctional officers, but also things being able to be snuck over a fence or tossed over a fence because there were staffing uh, shortages. They weren't seeing that stuff being brought in. And, you know, we have got to address that. And part of that is having enough people. So that's kind of what I want to do firsthand. Moving from there, a lot of it is legislative. Uh, the Board of Pardon and Paroles needs to be reined in as best I can. And that um, that's a tricky one. I'm not sure you know how deep you want to go into it because we could go pretty deep into this conversation, but I don't. I know we're we're limited on time, so 
One of the things that the Republican supermajority is trying to push through on education that we saw in the last session and we will almost certainly see in the next session and and probably with uh, even more fervor than last time because it's at the beginning of a quadrennium and so the pressure is the least amount that they will have over the four years because they are farthest away from an election, farthest away from accountability is what they call school choice, what is in actuality school privatization, what is your, um, what is your, if the school choice bill, quote unquote, that they had last session passed, is that something that you would sign as governor? If I'm remembering it correctly, we're talking about school vouchers and giving people the ability to take their funding that they would normally get through the process we were just talking about and choose where they put that funding. Um, I would not sign it. It doesn't mean it wouldn't pass anyway. So Mm this will be a shameless plug to like make sure you're voting for your local representatives, not just the governor, but make sure you're voting people in who who believe similarly to you and uh, in your local area. But no, I I don't support school vouchers. Um, I've I've gotten into a couple heated discussions about charter schools because I I see them as a stopgap measure currently. I don't I don't dislike the schools themselves. The concern is, you know, we're not putting funding where it should be, which is why they exist. So the problem isn't the charter school, it's actually the the funding issues currently. It's not, you know, we're 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 getting mad at the the band-aid that we don't like mm-hmm. the the look of or the feel of rather than the wound that's underneath. And I would rather focus on the the actual problem. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. 
Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, Or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need Ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE.com. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Alabama's only union talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Adam Keller, here with my co-host David Story, filling in for Jacob Morrison today. If you have anything to add, don't forget to send us a text at 844-899-TVLR. All right, folks. So we've had a we've had a packed show today. Uh, we're doing our best. Just me and me and David here in the studio. Doing our best to maintain uh, with technical glitches and, and all those sorts of things, but not too bad. Um, we've talked a little bit about the Labor Notes Troublemaker School from last weekend, uh, last week in Southern Labor. I mentioned that I'll be attending a climate summit in Houston coming up later this month. Uh, then we heard from two candidates in next month's election, Will Boyd, for Dem- uh, the Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate, and Jared Budlong, who is an independent write-in candidate for governor of Alabama. Uh, so, it, you know, it was interesting to hear what they have to say. Uh, I was telling David off the air that I, I appreciate Jared Budlong using his platform to try to educate folks about Alabama politics. Um, obviously, being a write-in candidate, we, we cannot expect that he's going to win or even make a, you know, a sizable impact on the final outcome. But it seems like he's he's connecting people. He's educating people. Uh, he's talking to people in a very plain, 
fashion, uh, talking to us like regular folks, and I appreciate that. So uh, my encouragement to Jared would be to stick around and see if you can get your name on the ballot as an independent four years from now. Uh, because right now you're building a base of support that could be your your base of support to get you on the ballot next time because it's going to require a lot of signatures, uh, a lot of folks, you know, beating the bushes with a clipboard and a pen, and uh, maybe maybe the folks you're talking to now can, can help you make that happen next time. So I want to uh, switch gears here and talk about labor's rising tide in Alabama. There's a resurgent labor movement in the United States, and Sweet Home Alabama is at the heart of this worker organizing. Let's check in on the major labor actions happening across the state, starting south and working our way up. Starting with Mobile, there is a strike threat among dock workers in Mobile, represented by International Longshoremen's Association, ILA, Local 1410. We know how important dock workers are and how important the Port of Mobile is to the supply chain. My understanding was that October 20th was the deadline for contract negotiations. So this story is still developing. Stay tuned next week for more details. Solidarity with the dock workers. In Auburn, there's an active union campaign with CWA at the GE Aviation Plant, with the campaign going public in August. There's already been unfair labor practice or ULP charges filed with multiple pro-union workers fired for what they believe was retaliation for their pro-union activity. That includes at least one worker who was pregnant. So stay tuned on that fight. We have a paper mill lockout in South Alabama. Members of the United Steelworkers who work at paper mills near Fort Mitchell, Alabama, have been locked out after rejecting multiple contract offers from the company as they try to hold on to excessive overtime penalties. If you can only read one thing on this, I highly recommend our very own Jacob Morrison's piece with the Real News Network titled, Alabama Paper Mill Workers Want Their Lives Back, and they're giving up $30,000 to get it. We also interviewed one of the local presidents on October 8th that you can find on our YouTube channel. These workers are fighting to protect their time, protect their family lives, and protect their safety. They're fighting to hold on to hard-won benefits that workers across the country have already lost. So a lot of set of eyes will be on this struggle. Uh, Back in uh, early August, I believe it was, we saw some wildcat public sector strikes in Lowndes County and Selma City, primarily over the need for a living wage. Uh, We'll be looking to report back on how that fight unfolds. October 1st marked 18 months on strike in Brookwood, with over 1,000 UMWA sisters and brothers holding the line against warrior Matt Cole. Of course, we've talked extensively over the past 18 months about this strike. And um, uh, David, I believe you actually had some good news to mention about the strike uh, regarding their Christmas list. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's uh, it just goes to show the solidarity uh among those of us on the left uh i'd whenever jacob reached out to me i guess about uh two weeks ago about coming in and helping with the show uh i thought i would get uh some people know most people that follow the show probably know bo of the fifth column he does a youtube show on uh on a lot of uh 
issues, you know, with that uh, general everyday working people have. Uh, but he's helped. He's helped support the labor movement whenever we've called. And so I just reached out to him and said, hey, would you come on the show and help us raise some money for for the UMWA strike for uh, the Christmas presents for these kids? And uh, he was like, yeah, I, I don't think that I can be there Saturday morning, but I'll uh, we can do like a pre-recorded show and, uh, and, and raise some money. And then like two days later, uh, he had raised already raised all the money for them. That's <laughs> nice. That's for, real I mean, nice. Everything that they had on their list was paid for by his audience. So yeah, I mean, it's just that's fantastic. A great guy. Uh, he'll do do just been over backwards for us and all of our folks. And he uh, he's in uh, in the Panhandle. He's right around uh, just south of Dothan and in Florida. So he's he's kind of local to us. Uh, if you if you're interested in that type of politics, uh, Bo is a good one to follow because he boils everything down to just average everyday American speak, and uh, he's just probably one of the best guys that I know uh, on on YouTube. Well, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, love to hear that. Love to hear that the kids of these striking miners are going to have a good Christmas this year. So, you know, shout out Bo of the fifth column and, and to everyone else who has donated and contributed to uh, the strike pantry and the strike funds for UMWA. And y'all don't forget about Bessemer where RWDSU's campaign at an Amazon warehouse was one of the early touchstones of the labor revival, labor revival, both here and nationwide. You'll remember the first vote was held in spring 2021. The union was unsuccessful, but due to Amazon's flagrant cheating, a revote was held in March. The results are too close to call, with the union down, but with enough votes, 416, being challenged that could swing the outcome to either the yes or no side. So the outcome is still up in the air. We know RWDSU is still there and still organizing, and we send them our love and solidarity. Also up in the air is the result of a Starbucks union drive in Scottsboro. The election for Starbucks Workers United ended in a tie, but also with challenged ballots uh, that we believe would be yes votes if they are counted. Uh, Earlier this year, a Starbucks in Birmingham was successful in its union campaign, making it the first unionized Starbucks in Alabama. We'll be looking to report back on how things go with first contract negotiations, especially considering the egregious behavior of Starbucks. Let's see. In August, AL.com reported that Huntsville Utilities employees were seeking to organize with IBEW 558. The workers packed out that week's Huntsville City Council meeting, IBEW seeking a Memorandum of Understanding, or MOU, with management. While not not as extensive as a collective bargaining agreement, which faces certain legal restrictions in the public sector in Alabama, securing an MOU, as IBEW has done in several other places— would be a significant step forward for these workers. And just this month, the organizing Huntsville Utilities workers received a declaration of support from the local progressive activist community. The Tennessee Valley Progressive Alliance sent a letter to IBEW 558 expressing their solidarity with the workers, their support of the organizing effort, and their offer of assistance as the campaign unfolds. I'm proud to be a part of the Tennessee Valley Progressive Alliance, and I really meant the words we wrote in that letter We know not all of those workers are going to jive with all of TVPA's politics, and that's okay. 
It's about building solidarity and being willing to show up for one another because it's the right thing to do. So to any Huntsville Utilities workers or IBEW members listening, know that a lot of folks support your effort. We recognize that you deserve a voice and that the entire community benefits when you get it. Don't hesitate to let us know how we can help. And there was other good news, especially at the local level. Uh, Back on Labor Day, our very own Jacob Morrison was on WAFF 48 talking about the local growth of unions. He told Megan Plotka, quote, The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, IBEW, has tripled their apprenticeship classes over the last two years. Their membership has grown 20% over the last two years. IBEW 558, covering North Alabama, is already the biggest trade union in the state. They have thousands of members. Ironworkers 477 out of Muscle Shoals. In just the last two months, they have tripled their apprenticeship classes. They have doubled their membership in the last two years. And while I don't believe it made it into the segment, I do know Jacob also shared with them that the North Alabama Labor Council is growing, with new unions affiliating or in the process of affiliating with the council. Always love to see more collaboration between the unions in our community. That's huge. I'm proud to be one of several new members added this summer to Huntsville's stagehand union, IOTC 900. There were RWDSU poultry workers in Decatur who saw a 20% pay increase in their most recent contract negotiations. We talked to them earlier this year. CWA 3905 in Huntsville has been organizing in their workplace to defend remote work, among other things, and you can listen to our interview with their local president, Mustafa, from a while back. The machinists out at ULA in Decatur, Local 44, were successful in getting a good contract earlier this year after authorizing a strike and preparing in case one was necessary. We had multiple segments covering the contract campaign, if you want to go back and hear more. And these are just the top stories that come to mind here in the Tennessee Valley. I'm sure we've missed some. All this comes a good. Um, all of this comes amid some promising news nationally. NLRB filings for new union elections are up, and new Gallup polling indicates over 70% of the American public supports unions. So, moving to a labor struggle with statewide impact, incarcerated workers in prisons all across Alabama have been striking for better working and living conditions and for criminal justice reform. A lot of the reporting we've seen has come from the Alabama political reporter, especially John Glenn, who we interviewed in the lead-up to the strike, as well as one week into it. More recently from the Alabama political reporter, Jacob Holmes writes, quote, The Alabama Department of Corrections on Monday declared an end to the incarcerated workers' strike and protest that has affected every major correctional facility in the state over the previous three weeks. Reports from inmates contradict ADOC assertions that things have gone back to normal. But backing up, on Friday, October 14th, we saw a significant protest in Montgomery. I reached out to a friend of the show who was in attendance, who said that the rally was really well attended. Ivy appeared to come to the window several times. It was announced during the rally that ADOC was returning uh, all prisons to three meals a day. Also on Friday the 14th, the incarcerated workers released a statement where they resolved to continue advocating for change and highlighted reports of retaliation. There have been multiple deaths recently reported across the correction system, including multiple deaths confirmed right here at the Limestone County facility. There was a powerful statement in the Montgomery Advertiser this week that In the month of July, more people died in prisons than were granted parole. I mean, just just think about that. You're more likely to leave prison in a body bag than through the parole process. It's just astounding. 
meanwhile, Alabama has been under additional legal scrutiny and national media spotlight regarding its execution practices. A federal appeals court judge literally called it a mess. The incarcerated workers went on strike because, frankly, they are facing a humanitarian crisis. Alabama has one of the highest incarceration rates in the United States, which has one of the highest incar- which has the highest incarceration rate in the world. That means inside the borders of Alabama, we lock up more human beings per capita than almost anywhere else on planet Earth. The lasting impact of white supremacy, so-called tough-on-crime laws and judges, backwards drug policies, persistent poverty and underinvestment, lack of rehabilitation, all of these things and more have resulted in the current crisis with violent, overcrowded, inhumane prisons which are under federal investigation. Things are so bad staffing-wise inside the prisons that an attorney who spoke with Huntsville's Way 31 believed that many corrections officers have been sympathetic, if not outright supportive, of the inmate work stoppage and protest. Despite the scale of the crisis garnering national attention, Alabama's political leadership has been completely inadequate in its response to nobody's surprise. Governor Ivey's statements were dismissive and ignorant. Right-wing media has framed the prisoners' demands as outlandish, and most of Alabama's political representatives have said nothing at all. But the fight continues. Here in North Alabama, the Huntsville Bail Fund, along with close to a dozen other local organizations, have published an open letter to Alabama leadership calling for marijuana law reform in light of the strike and President Biden's recent actions, and calling for Alabama to address the strike demands around reforming parole and sentencing. It's my understanding that protests will continue in Montgomery as well. So stay tuned as this struggle unfolds. If you haven't already, please reach out to your legislator as well as Governor Ivey to share your concerns about the prison crisis and ask that they listen to the cries for help from Alabama's incarcerated population. And lastly, in this segment, I wanted to include a couple stories that don't necessarily feature labor organizing per se, but do feature labor abuse and corporate misdeeds. So we're going to start with the automobile company Hyundai, which is facing reports of child labor at multiple facilities in Alabama. Uh, This week, there were some new developments. The COO uh, claimed that they're doing an investigation, uh, that they're going to stop doing business with the staffing agencies that they're they're blaming for this issue. Um, There were some some fines and penalties that were levied by both the state and federal Department of Labor, which Jacob reported on last week. And um, there's also some some concerns being expressed by UAW uh, that maybe some of these penalties are going to end up actually harming the workers involved and not so much the company. Uh, So we'll see how things play out there. But at the end of the day, it's just it's just bizarre to see in the year 2022 multiple facilities with a modern car manufacturer like Hyundai using child labor. And the Attorney General of Alabama knew about it for months and said and did nothing. Bizarre, you know, bizarre don't even, is not even (laughs) the term that, it don't even fade, you know. Well, there's some words I'd love to say about it and and Mr. Marshall that I probably shouldn't say on on FM radio. Yeah. The fact that, the fact that that the state government knew that 
kids as young as 11 to 13 were working in in in, in an industrial environment you know this wasn't uh Johnny or or somebody helping his dad on the farm this right. was a this was a factory that produces vehicle parts which uh, has been sanctioned previously because of yeah. safety issues in the workplace for amputees yeah. right people literally losing limbs yeah and we've got 11 and 13 year old kids from Guatemala uh, Honduras and places like that you know these so so-called uh Right-wing reactionaries want to keep all of the uh, supposed illegal immigrants out of the state unless they're contributing to the uh, economic impact with their children. You know, just, right. just a year or so ago, one uh, I think it was a 15-year-old uh, young, young, young man from uh, somewhere around Guatemala, uh, El Salvador, something like that, fell through a roof in Coleman doing roofing work uh, and died, you know, and just another blip on the radar for, for all these folks. Nobody nobody cares. Yeah, I mean, and, and don't come at me and say that you're pro-life and that you're about children when you have nothing to say when there's child labor happening right inside of our state in multiple facilities, not not just one. But more than one. I mean, that's just it, it's extreme. And and that's not the only one uh, I had to report on today. We're going to finish up with a company that's as common in Alabama as houndstooth and sweet tea. And I'm talking about Dollar General. You can't hardly drive a mile in any direction these days before running into a Dollar General. So I'm going to quote at length here from the Associated Press. Quote, Dollar General is facing another $1.68 million in fines after government safety inspectors found violations in four of the chain stores in Alabama, Florida, and Georgia, the federal regulators announced Monday. During inspections in April 2022, OSHA found dirty and disorderly storage areas and materials stacked unsafely at locations in Mobile and Grove Hill, Alabama, Tampa, Florida, and Dewey Rose, Georgia. OSHA said those conditions put workers at risk of slipping, tripping, and getting struck by falling objects. The company was also cited for fire hazards, including failing to keep exit routes and electrical panels clear and unobstructed, and neglecting to mount and label fire extinguishers. The announcement came two months after OSHA announced $1.3 million in proposed penalties for similar violations at three of Dollar General stores in Georgia. OSHA said Dollar General has faced more than $9.6 million in in initial penalties after 182 inspections since 2017. We will, quote, we will use our full enforcement powers to hold Dollar General accountable for its ongoing pattern of behavior until they show that they take worker safety seriously, said Assistant Secretary for Occupational Safety and Health Doug Parker in a statement. Dollar General, based in Goodlettsville, Tennessee, has 15 business days to comply or contest the penalties. The company did not immediately require, reply to a request for comment. And that's all from the Associated Press. So we've got Hyundai in the news. Now we've got Dollar General in the news. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, for one thing, it's good to see penalties. I will say that. Pleasantly surprised to see some accountability. Uh, but it's never... It's never the level of accountability that working class people face from 
the system. So you say that's the truth. How many of them's going to prison in the state? Right. Uh, how many of them's missing meals because of the strike the last few weeks? And you know, no, nobody, nobody ever. That's the biggest issue with with the state. Uh, the state, and when I say the state, I don't mean just the state of Alabama, but the state in general, uh, relying on them is the, the, there is no personal accountability for these managers, for these supervisors, for these HR folks, for the business owners themselves. There's never any personal accountability when they break the law. Right. It's it's you know, and 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 we sound like a broken record, but there's a reason why. The OSHA and places like this are never in a union facility because the workers take care of the facility. They understand the laws. They understand their rights. And and you don't have issues like this. It's only in non-union facilities where you have to have the state come in and intervene. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, because as a in a union environment, you as the members, you as the rank and file workers have a responsibility and a right to enforce that contract, right, and to hold management accountable for complying with the contract, for complying with state and federal laws. Uh, and that's what you do. And when you have issues on the job that are putting people at risk, uh, that are hurting people, the union's there to fight it. Yep. And, and, and that's why they want to keep the unions out of these companies. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, as a, as, as a, even as a right-wing person, you know, the, even like some of these idiots that's on the radio station after us, they, the <laughs> ones that profess that they want limited government. Well, the, the one way to get limited government is to put workers in charge and quit relying, having to rely on government regulations to to oversee these things. What's the first thing that happened at the UMW uh, at the, after the UMWA went on strike? They discharged the, all the scabs came in. They discharged all that uh, coal, whatever the coal dust is, into the freaking Black Warrior River. Right. You know what's the first thing? Because these guys are getting busted in from Kentucky, from West Virginia, from Pennsylvania. They don't care about our our standard of living here in the state. They don't care about us fishing our, our waters, our natural resources. All they care about is making a dollar. The folks that are working here care. Right. It's their community. It's their neighborhood. It's their way of life. And they're protected if they do see something and say something, they're not concerned about getting fired because they know they're doing the right thing and they know the union's going to stand up behind them and protect them. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think there's so much misconduct that happens out there in the workplace uh, because people are fearful of retaliation, because people uh, lack a union backing and a lack of union contract to protect them. And so therefore they don't say anything. They suffer in silence or they, they resign uh, rather than deal with it. Uh, but it's a big problem. And, and it's that's why I think it was important that I wanted to talk today about the the rising tide of labor in Alabama, because there is one. Uh, and it's spreading from Mobile to Huntsville. And I think it's now's the time to get involved. If you don't have a union yet in your workplace, now's a good time to start having the conversations. Um, so we're going to be wrapping up here in the next couple minutes. I do have some some plugs here at the end as we're wrapping up on FM radio. Just a reminder that we will be continuing the conversation online. So we go off the radio at 11 a.m., but we'll still be online on Facebook and YouTube. 
Uh, we've got Warren Tidwell from Hometown Action coming on. We got some other stuff planned. So uh, definitely stay tuned online after we wrap on FM radio. Also want to remind people that you can support our UMWA sisters and brothers in Brookwood by supporting the Strike Pantry at paypal.me slash UMWA Strike Pantry. October 24th is the deadline to register to vote in time for the November election. Please double check your registration status and polling place while you have time. Just Google it. Go ahead, do it. Do it between now and the 24th. Friday, November 4th, United Women of Color Huntsville will be hosting an event titled Protest and Silencing at 7 p.m. at UAH's, UAH's Morton Hall. Join for a discussion on the different ways oppressed groups have their protests silenced and how you can resist. Labor Notes has a series of online trainings. Uh, right now they're doing some Saturday Secrets of a Successful Organizer workshop. Uh, October 22nd, 29th, and November 5th, all online, all on Saturdays. And Labor Notes also has a webinar coming up on October 26th called Mexican State Journalist, 1,000 Days on Strike and Repressed. That should be interesting. Uh, leave us a voicemail at 844-899-TVLR. That's 844-899-8857. You can buy our hat or give us a donation at TVLR.FM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Valley Labor Report. Again, we'll be staying on the air live on Facebook and YouTube after we go off WVNN at 11. Stay tuned. Looking forward to a conversation with Warren from Hometown Action. Labor shall rule all power to the workers.